Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hi, it's Dr. Myers, and we have talked a lot in other episodes about how people who go into the field of social work or end up becoming clinicians or therapists are often driven into the field to heal themselves, whether they're consciously aware of that or not. A lot of the times, their own difficult, challenging, or traumatic backgrounds propel them into wanting to help others who've experienced similar feelings and pain that they have. But also, they tend to work through their own pain and trauma through the process of becoming a clinician and doing the work that they're doing because we are so focused on self-awareness and the ability to look within to understand why we're having certain responses that we do to the people that we work with to be able to better understand that other person. So I often tell my students that they are 50% of the equation, right? They often say that they're great listeners and that's what makes them able to be empathic and able to work well with others. But the reality is as much as the focus is on helping other people, we as a clinician are a very important part of the equation because we have to use our own lived experiences and our own internal processes and our own emotions in order to be so well attuned to our clients. So today, we're going to focus again on a developing clinician named Alba Torres, who is a Malloy University student in the social work program, and has had her fair share of trauma. And interestingly, she's a non-traditional student. So that means that she's not in her 20s. She's a little bit older than that. And because of being non-traditional, she had life experience before coming into this field. She owned her own company, and she spent some of her time doing volunteer work, helping children learn how to read and write. And through that experience, she uncovered that these children were part of families with domestic violence, which she too was a part of and experienced as a child. And that, again, motivated her to want to be able to offer more to these children. So it was really important to her to seek out an internship where she could work with the domestic violent population. And so now she's having her first experience 
doing the work directly with this population of children, where she's also, of course, anytime that we are working with children, we have to work with with the parents of the children. So we're going to hear from her uh, about her personal background and explore together some of the ways her background may situate her well to working with uh, those who have experienced similar situations, in other words, the domestic violence population, as well as looking at what challenges it may present. So hi, Alba, and thank you so much for being with me today. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, and taking time out to to tell us your very personal story. So do you want to give us a little background? Okay. Now, first, thank you for having me here. And uh, basically, the I've been living here in the United States for seven years. I was born in Caracas, Venezuela, and I was a child of a couple who passed away when I was five years old. So I could say that in that moment, all my, this journey and the world of the child neglect and abuse began. So I was adopted for this family and everything started there. I was given to a family, okay? Like, for example, you like this girl, you can take it. So I went to live with this family and I didn't have the love that a child needs. And I went through a variety of abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. And that made me feel like in that moment, I felt like a, a mix of feelings. I felt full of hate toward my mother, who didn't have any fault because she passed away. She was sick. She only passed away. But I was full of hate towards her specifically because she wasn't there for me. Also for my father, because even though he passed away before my mother, he abandoned me. And he not only abandoned me, me, but my family, my, my, my brothers, my siblings. He abandoned my mother. He left us like living in a situation, very poor situation where we're living, my mother had to work. So she couldn't take care of herself, mm. nor could not take care of us as her kids. I was one of the younger ones. I, I was nine years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, when all of this happened. So let me just clarify. Your father abandoned the family left the family, mm-hmm. yes? Left your mother to raise you and your siblings alone. Yes. And he was no longer in contact with the family? Okay, yes. so you lost him at five years old, lost, so to speak, through abandonment. Yes. And then he died at, how old were you? I was like seven, eight okay. years old. You were seven or eight, but you weren't in contact with him no. anyway. anyway. Okay, not that that doesn't make the loss any mm-hmm more or less significant. It's a significant loss, right? Because mm-hmm. maybe there's always hope that this person's going to come back and be the loving father that you need. Mm-hmm. Then your mom gets sick. Yes. Yes? And you were how old? I was nine. You were nine years mm-hmm. old. I was nine. Okay. And that was a traumatic event because she only was sick. So, you know, kind of cold. She was sneezing and she didn't feel good. But she told me, I remember, I was very young, but I remember when she told me, I don't feel well. 
So I'm going to the hospital and I'll be back. I think at the end of the day, I'll be back. And she never came back. Oh my goodness. Yes, she had a heart attack. <gasps> uh, the doctors uh, found out that she had pneumonia. Uh-huh. And she didn't know. She only had thought that she had asthma attack or something like that, so she couldn't breathe. Oh, it is a cold, you know. She didn't pay attention because she needed she need to work to take care of the whole family. There, there were five of us in the family with her and, yeah, six, six people in the family. Five children. Five children. You were the oldest? No, I was in the middle. Yes, I was in the middle. There was uh, the older one was seventeen. Mm-hmm. The next was fifteen. Mm-hmm. I was nine. Um, also, there was the another boy, seven years old, and the younger one, three years old. Mm. I was in the middle. And so there was absolutely no preparation for this no. whatsoever. No. So how were you told? Uh, I don't know. I feel like I remember the day was raining and I felt that something was wrong with the hair because, well, that was in 90s, 1987, you know, this communication was very limited, but um, cellulars didn't exist, cell phones, nothing like that, but uh, she didn't come home and we were in the, in the house of one family member, her sister-in-law. And we were there, and the telephone rang. And only when I saw her, and when I saw the, this this person who responded, so, uh, who answered the phone, when I saw her face, mm-hmm. I saw something that's, that mm. happened. Mm. She looked at me, and she didn't say anything. She only hugged me, and I started crying. Mm. And that was, I knew in that moment that mommy is not coming back home. Okay, wow. So then you were placed mm-hmm. with this couple who was going to adopt you. Mm-hmm. Now, were you placed with your siblings? No. No. Uh, my mother had only one uh, brother, and they told us that they couldn't take care of all of us because we were a lot, a lot of people. And they say, like, okay. We have to do something. So me, my older sisters, they decided to live their life by themselves. They were 15 and 17, approximately. And only we, my two brothers and me stayed with my uncle and his wife. But they told me that I, we couldn't live with them. So they had to do something. And one day I came, my my uncle's sister-in-law came to visit the house. Uh, she had problems having babies. She had already adopted a girl. And she asked who I was. And my aunt told her that, okay, this is, she is the, my, my sister-in-law daughter. And, you know, she passed away. And she said, oh, she's cute. I like her. Oh, she's cute. And... I always say when I went through this situation, I always compare when you want to give something. For example, if you have a bunch of puppies and someone comes to your house and say, okay, my dog had these puppies. If you like one of them, you can take them. 
And that was my my situation and my 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 brother's situation as well. So not like in the United States, no. there was no process of screening no. or any kind of assessment done to make sure that this was a suitable home for you. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. At all. Okay. So you were given to this couple. Mm-hmm. The legal process never existed. Never existed. No. And did you maintain contact with your siblings? No. Okay, so major losses, right? First, we have your father, then we have your mother, and then we have your siblings. Yes. Wow, that's intense. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you're saying that you were abused uh, physically, mm-hmm. I'm assuming emotionally, mm-hmm. and you mentioned sexually, yeah. right? That's a lot. So you were saying that that conjured up a lot of anger at your biological mother, Yes, because she, I, I didn't understand what she's, she left. And I remember when in, in her funeral, I hate her even more. Mm. I think my hate towards her, her started when I saw my younger brother calling her mama, I want my, my bottle, I want, I, I'm hungry. Because he didn't know that he, for some reason, he knew that the person that was in that box that casket, that casket mm-hmm. was his mother. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, like, hey, wake up, wake up. I'm hungry. Oh, my goodness. And I hated her. I hated her because I, I couldn't understand what, why she left us in going through this situation, what she allowed, to, allowed us to go to, through this situation. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. was, and we moved through the, we I moved with this family and never hear from my kid, my sorry my kid, my brothers, mm-hmm. nor my sisters. Mm-hmm. So we never had any type of contact whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Many years later, I I heard I received a phone call that someone called me and told me that my younger brother was killed. Uh, he got involved in drugs and gang mm. and he got killed mm. that's the only news i get from there this is such a poignant story that you have um and knowing you right from having had you in a couple of classes you present as somebody so not full of anger so i don't know if that's something that you've worked through or you work hard to have a different kind of outlook or you've processed this, but I guess in, in that, in terms of my observation, I'm, I'm maybe as a question because I know that your peers look at look at you as this person of stability and this rock of support. And internally, right, we never really know what's going on with somebody. Mm-hmm. So how do you come to understand that? I didn't have time to realize to to process all the situations mm-hmm. I was going through. But I think everything changed when I became a mother. Mm. That's another part of the story. Um, I was running away from home, from this home Mm. that offered me education, that offered me the love, that they offered me the love that I needed, but they they never gave it to me. And how did they offer it? No, okay. We're going to send you to school, you know, providing mm-hmm. all the, the main needs. Mm-hmm. Okay, Pro- 
education, food, I see. I see. and uh, the punish includes slapping um, down on my knees. Um, on rice? Rice, beans, uh, whatever they had available. Mm. But I think the toughest one was this, you know, this, the bottle lids. The metal bottle it. Oh my yes. god, that's so painful. Yeah. Wow. So a lot of punishment. So oh, that's really, really I'm very sorry you've experienced that. It sounds like what has come from that, as I said in the introduction, was this strong desire to work with the domestic violence yes. victims. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering how you feel your experience being a victim mm-hmm. of child abuse positions you well to work with this population. What do you what do you bring from this? What do you have to offer? I didn't know that I could work with victims of domestic violence. I just wanted to help these kids to read. So it wasn't common to see a 14-year-old girl who didn't know how to read, didn't know how to write. Uh, so I say, I have to do something, no? I started to observe certain behaviors in them. They were, they didn't want to speak. And when you approach them, they were like, they didn't want to be like, you know, do know, they didn't want me to be close to them. Not only me, all, all people. All, all physically Physically, close. they didn't mm-hmm. want. Mm-hmm. And also, we started talking and talking and talking and they started like disclosing their own stuff mm-hmm. and they things terrible things like you know i don't know how to read because i have no time and can you tell me more about it mm-hmm. and i never know i could become a social worker mm-hmm. no but I, can you i wanted to get more information mm-hmm. and and they say no you know because mommy has to work and she works cleaning houses and maybe she sells Food in the streets. Okay, so what do you do when you're home? Okay, uh, stay home. And I stayed with my father or my stepfather. And they started like talking about the process, what happened. I'm not happy when I am home with my father or with my uncle or with my uh, stepfather. And why no? Because he, I don't like the way he touched me. And, you know, everything started, like, from something very small, like, I don't want to be with him. But progressively, these kids started to disclose what was happening in their life, something very intimate. So when mommy left home, he comes to my bed, and he, all the things they do, to abuse them. What I find really interesting about this is whether or not you feel that most people who work with children, uh, helping them with reading and writing, would have uncovered these, what you're calling as red flags, but that there's something about your experience that made you explore this or, or look at something with a very different lens than most people would. Mm-hmm. When I saw this type of behavior in these kids, mm-hmm. they were very similar mm-hmm. to what really happened mm-hmm. to me. And I say, okay, something is happening here. And I, wanted, I didn't know how to do it. 
Honestly, I didn't know how, how to do it. I know how to do it now. Well, you didn't have the skills, you're because, saying, but mm-hmm. it was just your natural instinct mm-hmm. that it was almost organic for you based on your own experience. lived experience. It was your experience that allowed you to be so attuned to the signals and the signs that weren't spoken, right? Mm-hmm. But that you were observing and you were curious enough and empathic enough to want to help somebody in that situation. And as you say, you were curious, you wanted to learn more about that. So your attunement and your empathy and your caring and your genuineness and wanting to be that person and that could provide support, but also help make a child feel that, as you said, have a voice, have a presence, to feel acknowledged, to feel important, to feel that what they have to say is worth listening to. And so it sounds like you took them from a place of not wanting that physical contact to craving it and knowing that you were somebody who would be able to offer that in that position. So I am sure that your experience, as we're talking about, and as I imagine as you move forward in this internship, will allow you to see things and listen for things that somebody who does not have that experience but would have to be thoroughly trained for will come more naturally to you. Mm -hmm. On the other side, I'm wondering if you've given any thought to some of the challenges that it may pose for you as you work with people or children, really, you know, these vulnerable kids who don't have a voice at, the, at this time until someone offers it to them, and it touches on you such deep feelings from your past. What do you imagine that that's going to look like for you? I would say, like, the most difficult part I haven't gone through yet because I'm very, you know, early in my internship. But I think the most difficult part is when I have to talk to the parent, you know. And there are incredible, we can imagine the huge amount of kids that are being abused in this moment, that were abused last week, that have been abused in many different ways, in all the trauma that this caused them. I, have, I haven't interacted a lot with children in my experience, but I just want to empathize with them. But I think the most difficult part would be when I have to face the parent uh, and, you know, get some information from them. I will say in in certain way, I am like, I feel well in the way that I don't have to speak with the perpetrator because that corresponds to another department. Mm. Yes. That's Thank a nice way out. Yes. Yes. But with the mother, with the mother, because I, mother or, you know, uh, the, the caregiver. So. So in this situation, the children have been removed from the environment in which they were abused, and now they're in the care of somebody else, if not their mother. Mm -hmm. Sometimes. Sometimes. Well, when you say that the mother isn't necessarily the perpetrator, Mm -hmm. who is the perpetrator? Could be our uncle, our father, a stepfather, neighbor. Okay. But you still see it potentially challenging working with the mother or caregiver because I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that they, in a sense— 
I, I kind of put this in quotes, allowed it to happen. Yes. yes. Okay. And sometimes, in many cases, it happened. They are aware of the situation mm -hmm. that's happening with the kids, mm -hmm. but uh, they don't want or they don't have place to go, so they have to, you know, endure. They have to be there because they don't have a place to go. They don't have uh, other support from family or... Right, so they don't have the financial means or or the emotional wherewithal mm -hmm. to be able to leave the perpetrator yes. if they're in a mm -hmm. domestic violence situation themselves uh, where their child is also being exposed to this. Okay, but then there's also cases where a parent may not know that their child is being abused. And even in that case, right, that's considered neglect. How could a parent not know what's happening. And I can certainly understand that from an intellectual point of view rather than an emotional point of view that parents can have blinders on for various reasons. One, maybe they don't want to see what's happening because it's too painful or their own need to be connected to that perpetrator, right? Because they're starving or they're fragile or they didn't get what they needed growing up. So an abusive home is better than being alone um, in their construct. None of this is okay. But sometimes if we intellectually understand then we can kind of get there emotionally. But the fact that you're already identifying that this would be challenging for you puts you in a good position to be able to work on that and really yes. kind of get clarity on what feels so difficult about that. So I, I'd like to go for that to that for a moment. Your feeling of not wanting to work with that mother or caregiver comes from where? Is that part of your anger towards your own biological mother for, so to speak, putting you in the situation of abuse when, of course, intellectually we know mm -hmm. she didn't mm -hmm. send you off to be abused? She loved you, I'm sure, and would have never wanted that for you. But she maybe didn't take care of herself well enough so that she ended up having a heart attack and dying and, and, and abandoning you. So emotionally, we completely can understand that feeling of anger towards her. And is that the anger that you would be carrying over to one of these children's caregivers? Well, I won't say that because I had the opportunity to go to therapy and understand, as I mentioned earlier, when I became mother, I was very young when I became mother. I was 14. And uh, I felt like I loved so deeply. I could give my my life for my kids, for saying in a certain way. You know, they have become my everything. And it was the same thing with my mother. Mm. So I learned to forgive her. Mm -hmm. And I learned that it happened, that it wasn't her fault. Mm, because... All these little things that I remember from her, she was a very lovely mother. She worked so hard to the point that she got sick. Mm. And it sounds to me like you're saying it's very difficult to separate the intellectual understanding from the emotional feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know that they may be deprived themselves. Yes? Yeah. Or you're not quite clear on that yet? Mm, I think I'm not clear. 
So let me put it back to you. What do you think creates the situation where a child would be susceptible to abuse? What is it that that mother, I know we keep saying mother, it doesn't always have to be the mother. It could be the father and it could be a, a different caregiver. But what do you think allows that to happen? What is the caregiver doing or not doing in your framework? Many of these cases are uh, families who don't have any legal status here, for example, and they don't have, you know, they are they receive like threats from their their partner, like if you, you say something, so I'll report I'll you, report you, mm. you can be deported, mm. you're gonna be jailed, so you, mm. your kids is gonna be taken away, CPS is coming, so they use this kind of psychological threats or try to play with the mind of the other person. Yes, that's terrifying for the caregiver. Terrifying. Because I would also think that in their mind, and maybe not in their mind, in reality, their child needs them. Mm -hmm. And without them, their child is going to be left in the hands of the perpetrator, right? And be more susceptible to abuse. So what a terrible dilemma. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to speak up. They don't want to look for help. And So it sounds to me like you are empathic with that plight. Yes. But yet something's going to get in the way you're anticipating. Or already you say you feel it's hard to be, I don't know, empathic or wanting to work with that caregiver. So help me rectify that because mm-hmm. you're talking in a very sound way that you understand their plight. But on the other hand, you're saying you don't want to work with them. No. That that would be very challenging. That would be challenging. Yes. yes. In the case of many parents or mothers that know already, they know already that their kids are being abused. Mm-hmm. Okay, you call, you are asking for, for help, but why you didn't do it before? Probably, I think, the lack of information, probably this person was illegal in the country. Let's, let's take this team, for example. Uh, this person wasn't legal here, but she didn't know that she has rights. So until that moment that she learned that there are, there are organizations that can provide all the support she needs, and they decided to call and ask for help, she felt like she set free, you know? You're going back and forth between <laughs> the, the, the one who asked for help and that one, I'm getting the sense that that's, that's the preferred one for you. Mm-hmm. As long as somebody is asking for help, you're willing to provide that help, <laughs> right? And that that will um, be okay with you, that you can kind of forgive, so to speak, the situation and um, they're coming to you. But for the parents who either hasn't, or this has gone on too long, and now they're coming for help, your anger is based on the idea of where were you all this time? Why now? Why did you wait so long? Why did you allow for this to happen? Yes? I wouldn't say anger. No? Uh, no, I wouldn't say anger. I I would say, like, I I wouldn't know how to deal with those feelings of the person, and I understand, like, we make mistakes, and all the things they have gone through, 
But I wouldn't say anger. I would say like, I need to understand why, you know, the why. Why did you allow it? And even though this person is telling me, you know, I did it because of this, because I didn't, I didn't have another option. So basically it's learned to deal with those emotions, my emotions yes. towards this person. And I, I would say like angry is like, uh, anger is a feeling that I don't feel that I have even for, for this person who abused me. Okay. But it's, I found hard. Okay. to understand how okay. these people allow this. Well, the good news is, is that that's what our role is, to understand the why or the how, or so that we can find those answers from the clients and make them more aware of who they are, why they do things the way they do, how, why they feel the way they do, and with a greater self-understanding that can shift somebody's way of doing things or somebody's perspective. Mm -hmm. But what I hear you saying is that you need to know the why. And that's okay too, because you're curious. And we're in the position of being curious. That's, again, the path towards helping our clients with self-understanding. Self-understanding leads to development. It leads to growth. What meaning does the why have to you? Because the why question can give can give me the answers that I I probably <laughs> you know I, I realize it that I need to heal this part of why why this happened to you what why did you allow this happen to your kids and after this closing I have can I have come across that yes it's kind of helping me to heal with my own trauma what a revelation. And I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that <laughs> so far. Right? So that recognition, just because we now made that revelation, doesn't mean it's going to shift just like that. Because mm-hmm. I always say to my clients, you know, if you're 42 years old, it took you 42 years to develop into who you are. We're not going to undo this in mm-hmm. six months. Mm-hmm. Right? It's going to take time. But the first piece of the puzzle is to bring that into awareness. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now you have that revelation that the why is so important to you because what you're really trying to do is work out your own past and your own feelings around being abandoned. How could you, mommy, have let this happen to me? And so you're still going through that healing process. And so initially you said you forgive, you understand, but... Our feelings are so complex, and I'm sure there are parts of you that forgives and understands that your mom was a hardworking woman, and she was showing her support and love by killing herself, so to speak, Mm -hmm. to save you. She was, as you said earlier about your children, you would die for them. You would give your life for them. She did, literally. That's deep. So on the one hand, while you may have forgiven, and I'm sure you have, it doesn't mean that there aren't still a myriad of feelings to still work through. And yes, I think as you work with this population and things come up that are very close to home, 
and at least you're open to the reflective process and what is being conjured up in you, what is being triggered, you are going to heal through that. And it doesn't mean that you can't still be in the healing process while helping your clients, because if anything, the fact that you are willing to be introspective and attuned to yourself You're going to grow personally and professionally, and you're going to be able to use that growth to help them grow and heal. Absolutely. So it's really quite a parallel process at times. Mm -hmm. We don't have to be all healed to help other people. Sometimes it's actually easier to help other people than it is to help ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's why I always think that this work is such a privilege and a luxury, because people are um, are letting us into their most private sanctum, their most inner feelings and pain, and trusting us with that. But also, again, we are learning through our work with them so much about ourselves. So I think that this was a monumental discussion, I'm hoping, for you. It feels like it to me. But I feel like I'm saying a lot, and I will turn it over to you to say, where does this leave you now as you move forward in your work? I think it teaches me that I need to learn more and need to work myself. And it gives me more, it opened the door to me to look for more knowledge to improve myself as a person and as a, as a, a social worker. So in order to improve, to help my clients in the future and specifically this type of population, I think. And this is exactly what I meant that we're 50% of the equation, mm-hmm. that we are constantly works in progress. And this is what makes the work so challenging at times is all the feelings that come up in us when we're working with people either who have stories similar to our own. And so it brings up a host of emotions that we may not want to experience ourselves or we're not prepared for in the moment. And that's really hard work. The emotional aspect of holding other people's emotions for them at times while also contending with our own. And that requires such vulnerability if we're really willing to work on that level, right? We have to be willing to to work on that. But it, it allows us to empathize with our client's vulnerability, but also touches on our own. So given that, I want to thank you so much for sharing what you did in regard to your life story and leaving yourself open to learning things about yourself that you weren't prepared for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, And I think we are always in the learning process and we. it is good when we go to different kind of scenarios so you can identify what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, so you can work on that in order to improve. Because if I don't improve, I don't try to help myself, I don't try to uh, heal internally, so maybe I won't be able to help other people. You will definitely be able to help other people (laughs) because you're already on the path to Mm -hmm. self-discovery, self-exploration, introspection, insight, And that's what's needed to make you the best clinician that you can possibly be. So you're well positioned 
to continue to grow and continue to thrive. And I would say that too for our seasoned social workers out there and our seasoned clinicians that never stop growing, never stop being open to the process of uh, introspection. So thank you so much again, Alba. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?